There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 14th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. There was a chink of light in uh, the Brexit merry-go-round when the Taoiseach met with uh, the British Prime Minister last week. A joint statement on behalf of Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson said afterwards that the leaders had seen a pathway to a deal. A different pathway to what Boris Johnson said was just the reality of needing customs checks on the island of Ireland after Brexit. A very complicated proposed solution put forward by the UK suggests Northern Ireland would leave the EU Customs Union but would apply European rules on tariffs and quotas. The UK says it is willing to make concessions on the border but how it does this without accepting a backstop and agreeing not to leave uh, not to have customs posts has proved challenging for European negotiators to absorb. The EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, said a big gap remains over customs arrangements. Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP and first vice president of the European Parliament, is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Mairead. And thank you, as always, for joining us here on the programme this morning. The clock isn't just ticking down on this. Time is running out, in actual fact. The leaders are to meet on Thursday, but those discussions to all intents and purposes, get underway tomorrow, don't they? Well, look, I think you've given a very good summary of where we're at. And I'm, I'm loath to say time is running out because 2016 was the referendum and this is 2019 and we're still not uh, over the line yet. But clearly there is an extra push this week for lots of reasons. There is this big meeting of the leaders of Europe Thursday, Friday. But also I think from the UK side, and I think you have to look at the politics on both sides, is that the UK Prime Minister has a Queen's speech today. His eye is on the next election and he is looking to try and I would presume announce something uh, before the the House of Commons debates uh, finally on Saturday. So there's a lot of politics Mm. outside of the negotiations which are perhaps putting pressure on the uh, negotiators but ultimately um, following Friday's positivity, and I think it was good there was a joint statement, Mm. When you then sit down to work out the technical and legal challenge of what is being proposed, it does become a mind bender to some extent as to how this can work both legally and from the point of view of business in a, in a way that doesn't clog up uh, the system with bureaucracy. On the other hand, the negotiations continue. So I think mm. that it depends on your mood on a Monday morning and the rain is falling, whether you feel a little bit gloomy or whether you think, well, look, it is possible that things can move 
because the parties are certainly working towards that, even though Michel Barnier has, if you like, calmed uh, or if you like, cooled optimism of something immediate mm. by saying there's a great deal of work to be done, which there is. Yeah, and everybody's trying to get their heads around it. But uh, if that is possible, is it viable? They're talking about uh, arrangements uh, where if goods come into Northern Ireland from Britain, there would be an EU tariff put on them. If uh, they go across the border, that's all well and good. But if they stay in Northern Ireland, then uh, the uh, importer would get a rebate. Uh, How is that a a realistic solution? Well, I suppose that's what the experts in Brussels, uh, both UK and EU, are trying to work out. So in my head, I haven't quite got my uh, brain Mm. around how that would actually function. And there's the added complication of an ingredient coming into Northern Ireland, which ends up in a product that goes out. What happens there and what are the different tariff issues around that? And look, quite, I, I think what we're looking at here is an attempt by Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, to not have anything called a backstop, but to try and achieve the same thing as a backstop. But the truth is, we've been through this uh, with the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. There was mm. a Northern Ireland only backstop, which is a very clean mechanism, except obviously there are difficult politics around it. Then the UK proposed the all-UK backstop. The new Prime Minister doesn't want that. He wants something either in between or slightly different that he can persuade his own, I suppose, hard Brexiteers that he has won a victory in terms of the UK pulling out of the European Union. But I think there's one big fear here. I know from chairing debates in the European Mm. Parliament, the Brexit party that he's trying to, if you like, romance almost, want a hard Brexit. And no deal is their objective. They don't want a deal. So I think there's a huge amount of complexity um, about what happens if and after there's a deal in the House of Commons. Mm. There's an added complication as well, because uh, despite Boris Johnson's efforts to find a way around this or to find a a compromise or however you look on it, uh, unionists in Northern Ireland see it as a, a sellout. Well, you know, there was different comments and statements made between Friday and today. And obviously the DUP are in particular, um, you know, quite hardline about their concerns about Northern Ireland being in anything other than the closest of relationships, customs and otherwise uh, with uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So I think you can understand that. That's not a surprise. One would expect, though, that Boris Johnson could try and persuade those colleagues Mm. to uh, come with him. But there's also another issue beyond the complexities and technicalities of tariffs and quotas and all of those things that are above my, you know, and most people's uh, knowledge at this stage. And it is going back to the House of Commons. You know that the Labour Party are going to vote against anything that's brought forward. I'm not sure of the numbers then because the number of the um, Tories uh, have left the party or at least are outside the fold. How will they vote? So even if we had this miracle breakthrough in the next 48 hours before mm-hmm. the, the, the meetings later this week, you're still in a very difficult place in terms of getting anything through the House of Commons. And then the European Parliament will have to have its say as well. Mm. My best hope is that we will tomorrow morning hear from Michel Barnier again and that he is in a position to go to the leaders on Thursday morning to say, look, we are making slow but steady progress. We are not there yet. This will take time, etc., etc., and mm. that we see a process evolve where more time is required and extension is asked for, although... Prime Minister Johnson has given mixed messages on that, but it seems inevitable that that will be the case. Perhaps then there's an election mm. in the well, well, he's given a very clear message on it. He doesn't yeah. want an extension. He won't ask for an extension. He wants to leave on the 31st. Mm. Uh, no ifs, buts or, or maybes. Come what may, deal or no yeah. deal. He's been very, very clear, but I think few believe him. 
this is the thing. I mean, he's saying one thing, but he knows the law says exactly the opposite. And I've had some interesting conversations with members of the House of Lords uh, on this issue, and they say to me very clearly, look, uh, British, the British Prime Minister has two audiences at the moment. One is his electorate and looking towards next election, and the other is to the European dimension of this debate. So the law in the UK is very clear that if a deal isn't done, an extension has got to be requested. How that would evolve then with the rhetoric that has been said, one doesn't know. But in this entire debacle, from the very get-go of calling a referendum, there have been events which none of us would have predicted. The time has Mm. really expanded beyond all of our um, fears. And I think at this stage, even in Ireland, we're, we're fearful of a hard Brexit. There is a weariness growing about can we live with this uncertainty, this rolling over yeah. of the time frame, or are we not closer to getting there? And I think there is a real you know, sense of urgency, a hope and an expectation that something will emerge. But I think Michelle Bernier is always a good um, barometer of where things are at. And, you know, first thing is mm. negotiations are continuing. Second thing, a lot of work to be done. Not surprising, given the complexity of the proposals that have come from the UK side. Mm. Well, they have been remarkable times, uh, and I don't know if we'll ever forget uh, that moment in the House of Commons uh, when opposition MPs shouted, shame on you, at Mr Johnson over his decision to prorogue Parliament. Uh, and mm. the reason he suspended Parliament uh, was to allow for the Queen's speech. Uh, he was found to have broken the law. He said he'll break the law again uh, and has uh, suggested uh, that he, he won't be looking for this extension uh, but the, the Parliament uh, has resumed it was suspended again for another few days but will resume uh, again this week after the Queen's speech and this is uh, the British government's uh, way of outlining its programme of legislation but when you talk uh, about an election. There's many people who are suggesting that this will be nothing short of uh, political broadcasts, uh, party political broadcasts on behalf of Boris Johnson and the Conservatives uh, and that this is uh, the next step towards that election. Yes, and I think that um, there's a lot of concern in, in, in opposition circles in the UK that the Queen's speech is actually part of a political broadcast for the next election rather than a statement of intent. So be that as it may, that, that battle will have to be fought in the United Kingdom about what happens. But I think there is a, a, a general feeling that an election will happen sooner rather than later in the United Kingdom. And here's the conundrum then, if there is an election in November, because I'm not sure of the dates as to what time is required, but let's say it's November and a new government comes in, whatever hue and colour may be a majority, Boris Johnson, who knows how this will unfold. Will there be time, if the extension is to the end of January, will there be time then for a new government to settle down and work towards a deal? And my uh, contacts in the UK would say there will not be enough time and that we would need to look beyond the end of January. A six-month extension. Mm. Uh, yes, but mm. I'm not sure that the leaders this week will be mi- minded to suggest that. I, I really don't know what the mood will be around the council table. I think there's so many big issues. Look what's happening on the border of Turkey. Uh, we have a big debate about the future of the European budget. The Commission is having some difficulties getting established. So there's a lot of business both foreign policy-wise and internal in Europe, which will also be discussed at this meeting. Mm. Brexit is both one, and it's the one that is just persistent, uh, like the rain this morning. It just will not go away. And there's a real sense that, look, something needs to give for this to happen so that we can move on and do our business and that the UK and Europe can move on and form whatever relationship is best for the future. So... This is my fear that even if we get to an extension that 
the next date may not even be achievable. Mm. And uh, I, I hate saying that, but it feels it certainly feels like that this morning. Uh, and is it that an extension would be given to uh, trash out uh, this proposal a, a bit more from uh, the UK? You said earlier on you were finding it uh, difficult to understand how it might work in practice. Uh, but uh, is, is it a, a viable proposal or is it an extension that would be given in order for them to sort it out and come back with something a little bit more realistic following on from an, an election or a referendum? Well, I think that this is one element, remember, of the issue. This is the customs issue. Now, the fact that talks didn't break down and they're still happening means that people are trying, I presume, at the negotiating table to get their heads around mechanism mm. for this, at the moment, unthinkable scenario and probably very unique globally could actually happen. And difficult to understand how the Taoiseach would have seen merit in it as well, but he did. Well, you see, what what was important on Friday was, I suppose, the mood music, the body language and the joint statement. And I think that was critical to the um, slow progress that there was over the weekend. I think without that, we would be in a much more difficult place. So I think that was really important. They spent a lot of time uh, and energy. And I dare say that Taoiseach was repeating and trying to urge the British Prime Minister to fully understand, first of all, a, a walk away with a no deal on, on everybody, but particularly why we are so sensitive uh, and why Europe is so conscious of the issues on, on the island of Ireland. And I would imagine that has helped because I have been quite... Um, I suppose alarmed to some extent when I meet various groups from the UK uh, where they're not quite as tuned in to the realities of the, of the impact as we might be. So look, I wouldn't uh, you know, dismiss what happened. It was really, really important. But then it is the technical and the legality of these things that are being tested. And the fact that they didn't, as I say, break down with no hope is, is, is positive. So I am going to remain positive until mm. I hear otherwise. And I've had some you know, dampening of the enthusiasm. I've been talking to colleagues in, in Brussels just before I travel out today. And, you know, people are saying, OK, the talks are going on, but really mm. don't expect any major developments. Not this week, because this is far too complicated. And there is a second issue of consent that was not discussed, as I understand it, at all over the weekend. Mm. That would also And this is what is being called a veto for the DUP. Well, this is what people are putting a a headline on, and certainly it would be very wrong that any one party could veto, because we have to come back to the fact that in Northern Ireland, a majority Mm. voted to remain. And Julian Smith. There are many other voices in Northern Ireland, and Mm. yes, Julian Smith has been very much... That's the Northern Secretary, said it it won't be a single party who'll decide, and there's been talk of double consent. Yeah, and this, again, wasn't discussed yet. So we're really, you know, looking at one element on the table that has not been teased out fully and the other, which I think would be quite complicated because of the politics. The other one is the technical and legal issues and the politics of, of consent. But it is important. And, and truthfully, even though we might weary of this, I think mm. from our point of view and from a European perspective, it is worth spending time now, even if it is years rather than months that this evolves, in order that we put something out there that is workable and doesn't cause a problem in the the medium to long term. And I think that's why the negotiations Mm. are so difficult and why we really have to stick to our principles on this and hope that things can work out for the good of of people on this island and indeed right across Europe. Okay, so by the end of uh, this week, you expect more time to be given to that and that uh, an extension to that deadline of uh, the 31st of October will be agreed on. Well, I want to be wrong. I'd love to see yep. the deal could happen, but yep. I, I want to be realistic as well. And I also know that even if the bones of the deal are struck, that it will take time for it to be translated into text, legal mm-hmm. text. It would have to be examined by a committee that I sit on, the European Parliament, the Constitutional Affairs, it would have to go to our Parliament to vote. 
through the House of Commons. So you can't do these things overnight, even though there was some indication that the British Prime Minister would like to have it voted should it happen on Saturday. But that would be an awful ask for a Parliament to look at a very detailed treaty uh, and give it the nod in such a short period of time. So I suppose if, if nothing else but time might be against us at this stage, but okay. at least there is hope this morning. All right, we'll leave it there and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP and first Vice President of the European Parliament. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Julianstown and District Community Association is hosting a public meeting this Wednesday in the Glenside Hotel. It's to protest about the worsening traffic situation in Julianstown and indeed the wider East Meath area as the campaign for a bypass of Julianstown steps up a gear. Marie Cairns paid a visit to the village where these locals told her about the concerns that they have. There's no question and it's a huge concern. My children and I, we walk to school every day and it's such a busy road. I'm always afraid they're going to trip and fall onto the road. And with the amount of cars, I wouldn't dream of letting them on a bike on the road. It's just too much traffic. It's throughout the day. Afternoon time, trying to turn to get down towards Drogheda. I'm sitting there and sitting there. So I've waited 10, 15 minutes to try and get out onto the main road. And it's just crazy. It's all day, every day incredible the level of traffic nobody ever wants to spend the money involved and they consider the m1 is our bypass but it's not our bypass because you've got all the people coming from south drogheda um east meath coming from Beston late and mornington there's a huge area and there's just more and more houses growing all the time we're fortunate that we're within walking distance so we walk a kilometer to the school each day um but there are days where it's just too wet and i can't have them sitting in the classroom wet so we have to go in the car and it takes forever it's unreal it is faster for us to walk a kilometre than it is to drive. Now that's ridiculous. That shouldn't be happening. But at the same time, my kids are getting great exercise, so that's a positive. But not everybody's close enough to do that. Um, so the frustration for everybody who have to sit in that traffic is just, you know, I just feel for them. It's awful. We need to get the bypass in as soon as possible. Just the traffic every morning, it's like an hour each way, same in the evenings. Um, my house is just off the main road, so thousands of cars every day running by. It's just crazy for such a small little village people speeding through it at night it's the opposite way um, so anything to get the traffic away from the, from the village would be great you, you think you're in the middle of Dublin um, with the traffic some mornings like I said I've often taken 45 minutes to get from one side of the village to the other coming home in the evening or leaving in the morning so anything will be better than, uh, than what it is now Residents of Julianstown and County Meath brought their campaign for a bypass to Leinster House in recent weeks when they appeared before the Oireachtas Transport Committee Locals there have had enough They are fed up of the estimated 22,000 vehicles that clog up and choke up their village passing through every day. Neve Bandley Lynchy is chairperson of the Julianstown and District Community Association and says the committee is prepared to do whatever it takes to secure the bypass, including legal action if necessary. As well as the traffic, right, you also have air pollution. You have noise pollution. And at this stage, we actually have an air monitoring control system in Julianstown. It was recently installed by ourselves. Uh, We have it on loan from someone and UCC in Cork are very kindly going to interpret the findings for us. And then we will have our ammunition to go ahead if nothing is forthcoming from the Department of Transport. Where are you going to go with that if nothing is forthcoming? Well, it'll be the EU. We will have to approach them if nothing is forthcoming from this country. I think that that is the only way forward then. At the moment, we're 
tiny little regional road and yet we're the 16th busiest in the country. We have 22,000 vehicles going through Julianstown every single day and the TII, which is over transport for the country, they say that for that type of traffic we should have a dual carriageway. Now, you can't put a a dual carriageway through Julianstown like the bridge there it used to ferry horse and carts across the bridge 200 years ago it's still the same bridge so we need a bypass it's extremely dangerous uh, you know for the children going to school especially with the school bill going on they have to cross the road three times to get into school so how long are you prepared to wait or what's your next step well Meath County Council have sent in what is called an appraisal now they sent it in last December and they still never got a reply back from the Department of Transport. So the department actually were a little bit, the representatives there were a little bit taken aback that there was no response to their appraisal. And they have now agreed the next step, which is another survey, and that will be done on where the traffic is coming from, where the traffic is going to, and that will take another 9 to 12 months. But it's the next step on the ladder. Like you look at the Slane Bypass, it's taking forever, the RD one, I think, has been put back on hold. But it's up to the Department of Transport to come along, find the funds. Eastmead is going to come to a halt. If you, if, if you are very ill and you have a blocked artery, what do you do? You go to hospital and you fix it. You don't keep on letting it build up until the whole Eastmead and South Drada comes to a standstill. Uh, there's something like 18,000 houses still at planning or st- still about to be built over the next so many years where are they going to go what roads are they going to use well I have to say I experienced uh, the backlog myself this morning I left LMFM come down the Denor Road up the Dublin Road past Grange Rath and then suddenly past the Glenside Hotel there was the traffic queue in front of me and I came to a standstill and I was at stand still a couple of times and then snail pace moving into the village so it took me as long to get into the village as it did to get to that stage past the Glenside so it must be very frustrating at peak times and you say the traffic was lighter this morning it was light this morning yeah actually you did very well but if you're a pedestrian and you want to cross the road it's there are two pedestrian crossings and they're 1.2 kilometers between the dis- is the distance between each one so if you're a mother with a child and you want to cross the road or an elderly person trying to cross the road, you're going to either try and get across in between the traffic or else you have a long walk ahead of you. Some people might say it's already bypassed with the M1. The M1, no. The M1 is about 35,000 vehicles per day. We're at 22,000. I don't see no bypass at this stage. We need another road. And a lot of people probably come through Julianstown to access the M1. Yeah, of course. Well, if you're living in South Drogheda or Eastmead, you're hardly going to go back up the Denor Road to get back uh, to get out onto the M1. You're going to come the shortest route, which is through Julianstown. The noise alone, like your house shakes when the traffic is going by at speed. In the morning time, it's very, very slow. Nobody can move anywhere. But once the traffic is gone at peak time, once peak time is over, then it speeds up and it's just zoom, zoom, zoom. Your house rattles, your windows shake, and you can't hear yourself talking inside in your house. The sense of frustration was apparent amongst those dropping children off at White Cross School in Julianstown on Friday morning. I live about five minutes walk from the school, but I couldn't let my children walk or walk down because there's no paths. So there's no way to there's no way to get here other than really to drive because it's just so dangerous. So I mean, it, I think it has to be looked at. The, like Julianstown Village is a tiny village. There's like a pub and a shop, and that's it. And there's just a, such a volume. It's like the outskirts of Dublin now. It's really become like so 
it, it really has to be looked at, I think, and safety has to be for the children as priority. I leave Grange Rat at 10 past 8 and I don't get to Julian's town till 20 to 9. The minute you hit Smithstown, you're goosed. It's just like it should be bypassed. And this morning alone, there was six lorries ahead of me. Yeah, six lorries, one after the other. They shouldn't even be on that road. And like they're after, like as I said, going back in now is okay. But the traffic coming out every day. I if I don't leave at ten past eight, forget about it, the kids, Ellie. Afraid for the kids. The traffic is just atrocious. I don't see why we don't have a, a bypass. It's so bad. There's going to be a very bad accident. An absolutely humongous accident out there. It's diabolical really at the minute. I live on the Laytown Road and it currently takes me forever to get out from the Laytown Road up until the Dublin Road. Like I saw that today. Yeah. You're just relying on the good of people. Especially if it's bumper to bumper that's one thing because people can't move so they generally let you out but if it's a fairly steady stream you could be sitting there for 10 minutes. I've often had to turn left going up the Delique Road and go in through Baymore just because it's a hell of a lot easier than sitting waiting in the traffic for 15 minutes trying to get through. And if you're walking from say the lime kiln up to the other side of Julian's town. There's a stretch of road just before the bridge that there is no footpath. You are literally walking in people's front gardens to get through. And I have a dog and trying to walk the dog. I have to. The dog needs to go in front and I need to go behind the dog. So God forbid a lorry or something comes like that and the dog gets spooked. It's a nightmare. So basic daily enjoyments like walking your dog is severely curtailed because of the traffic and the volume of it coming through the village. Yeah, because I normally would bring her through there at the old church to go for a walk. There's nowhere to cross the road. There's a crossroad up outside the creche. But sure, if you cross the road up there, there's no footpath on that other side of the road. So you have to cross the road at the bridge where there traffic constantly coming down there's no footpath for you to pull in and it's, it's it's so dangerous it just it's not enjoyable to bring my dog for a walk so do you think it's time for the government to give serious attention to a bypass absolutely like i don't see why i need to bring my dog out to ardgillen or to oldbridge to go for a walk when i've got plenty of walkways here that cannot be used because of the terrible road situation residents in julianstown venting their frustration with marie kearns in that report and to just to remind you the community association is holding a public meeting in the Glenside Hotel at 8 o'clock this coming Wednesday evening. Michael Reed on LMFM. The promise was uh, that uh, the United Kingdom would be united in leaving uh, the European Union and uh, that Northern Ireland would leave on uh, the same basis as uh, the rest of uh, the United Kingdom. Is that the case today? Well, it appears not to be. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down, joins us on the line. Uh, Do you believe you've been sold out by Mr Johnson? Well, Mike, I was on Rathlin Island over the weekend and I was coming off the ferry this morning and I heard rumours that the um, <clears throat> the backstop for unionism, which was that they would have a say in whether they entered the agreement or left it, that that seems to be being dropped. Now, if that is the case, then certainly we would be very disappointed in what has been negotiated between your Prime Minister and ours. Mm. Well, Julian Smith, the Northern Ireland Secretary, said as much, and he said that not any one single party would have a a veto over when Northern Ireland would leave completely. Uh, But what is being suggested to begin with is uh, that whilst Northern Ireland would, in theory at least, leave the European Union, it would come under European rules on tariffs and quotas. Uh, You'd be trapped uh, in EU structures, would you not? We would, and the only way out would be for Leo Varadkar and the Irish government, as one of the 27 remaining members of the European Union, to agree to let us out. Now, we all know that uh, Leo wouldn't allow that, or if he did, it would be a horrendous uh, price, perhaps constitutionally. Mm. So 
Or, or Sinn Féin, perhaps, uh, because they're talking about double consent instead of that single veto for the DUP. Well, it's very complex, Mike, and, mm. and, and but we have a system called the Petition of Concern, and uh, the only way we would come into any agreement would be through uh, the DUP supporting it, and the only way that we could stay in it is if the DUP supported it. So mm. therefore... We no, I, I understand, that. but they are talking about changing that to allow for double consent, that you wouldn't have a single veto. Well, that would be totally unacceptable because nothing will work without unionist consent. We have stood by the government loyally now for three years. We campaigned for Brexit. We certainly not are going to put ourselves in what's called the Hotel California situation where we can check out any time we want, but we can never leave. And the reality is, without the unionists having a direct say in that, that's exactly where we'd be forever. And you and I could be in 20 years' time still discussing a situation that unravelled poorly and we can't get out. So that is an absolute bottom line for the DUP. And that's indeed the reason why the DUP moved on the whole issue of the border down the Irish Sea issue, because we decided that as long as we had control of our own destiny, that was a price worth paying in order to achieve some level of agreement. What's the parliamentary arithmetic at this stage? Uh, The Conservatives have relied on uh, the support of the DUP, uh, but that may or may not be the case in terms of this proposal if it was accepted by Europe being put to the House of Commons. Yes, Michael, but you have to see way beyond the 10 DUP votes. The what's called the European Research Group, which is a very strong body within the Parliament, and it takes its steer normally from the DUP. There's very close relationships with it. And if the government comes back on the 17th with a very poor deal, and the DUP says it's a totally opposed to it, many ERG Conservatives will also vote against it. So therefore, the arithmetic is such as without the 10 DUP signed up to it, there will be no agreement. So it's absolutely essential that we are taking along. And we have moved and we have tried to facilitate the government, but there's an absolute bottom line. In the same way, the people of Galway would not accept a constitutional change in their position without their consent. Mm. There is no way that Northern Ireland can be tied into any form of custom union without having the right at some stage, if they wish to do so, to leave it. What might this mean for the people of Galway or the people of Limerick, for that matter? A prominent loyalist, Robert Gervin, told the Sunday Times uh, this weekend, I can't see loyalism of any strand just walking into a situation where there is this type of economic union with the Irish Republic. He went on to say, I was talking to someone who said, we'll see how hard the border is if bombs start going off in Limerick. Utterly irresponsible um, talk, uh, loose talk, and the last thing we need at the moment, given the fact that we're trying to tiptoe our way through a a bit of a a landmine strewn field here. You know, the last thing we need is is people who have had a paramilitary past threatening to go back, either Republican or national. Nationalists, this has to be solved through diplomacy and through statecraft. It cannot be solved by the threat of violence and I think everyone both sides of the border would utterly deplore those comments because it brings back awful memories of things like the Dublin Monaghan bombing Mm. Uh, and of course the many terrorist incidents we've had in Northern Ireland. We've put that behind us and for all our faults and for all of the wrangling, at least up to now it's been done uh, through the parliamentary and the media processes not uh, through violence and I just wish people like that could just go 
shut up, basically, uh, and, and go back to what they do best, which is petty crime. Well, well the Sunday Times was reporting that the UVF and the UDA are, are talking about a campaign of civil disobedience if such a, a deal uh, results in uh, the uh, North or Northern Ireland uh, being uh, disconnected in any way whatsoever from the rest of the United Kingdom. Well, you could have civil disobedience in the, in the form of uh, articulating your, your concern in a peaceful and democratic way. But unfortunately, we know from the past that some of those involved in those activities can go the next step, which is not acceptable. Um, look, uh, this sort of talk doesn't help what are very, very difficult negotiations. We accept mm. that there are strongly held opinions on both sides. We thought we were there last week. I'll be honest with you. We thought there was a breakthrough through the Boris Johnson statement. That hasn't happened. But we're going to have to find some way of squaring this circle by Saturday, because that's when the uh, the effective cut-off date is, because that's the emergency meeting of Parliament in London. Um, and, you know, people shouldn't be throwing their tuppence worth in to try and unsettle the situation. We need to support our negotiators, both London, Dublin, Northern Ireland and the EU, to try and, and get round what everybody accepts is a terribly difficult and complex issue. And you know, Mike, we know what's even sadder is this was meant to be the easy bit. Yeah, this was meant to yeah be there's the, two the, years the, to go yet after this. Yeah, case, the, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the difficult mm-hmm. stage, we're told, was the negotiating of the trade deals. You can see the quiver in my voice when I even say that. <laughs> <laughs> the point mm-hmm. is that you know, we're, we're going to have to get this solved and then get down to the really technical issue of negotiating the trade arrangements between Britain, Great Britain, Northern Ireland and the rest of the European Union. Or the European Union. And we really do need to set the proper tone for what could be very difficult months and years ahead. Now, I think some of us will be ready ready for to be sectioned, to be honest, uh, after this, because it has been absolute nightmarish even to follow it. I've been and asking you, though, since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, if he would sell the DUP out, uh, and uh, there was something awfully predictable uh, about uh, the deal that is being proposed, and it, it seems inevitable that Boris Johnson was always going to throw the DUP under a bus. Well, only if the DUP allowed them to. We don't trust any individual implicitly. We watch very carefully. We've got some very wise heads at Westminster, people like Nigel Dodds and Geoffrey Donaldson. They're watching things like a hawk. And if it appears that there's something has gone astray here, then we will be, A, withdrawing our own support, but B, speaking to the large number of sympathising MPs that we have at Westminster and saying, look, we just can't live with this. So Boris Johnson has much more than 10 MPs to deal with. Mm. Um, I we need to be a bit careful here because some of what we're discussing this morning is speculation. But we we need to be very very careful that mm-hmm. we don't do anything to make a difficult situation worse in what could be the most important week of the constitutional history of the British Isles. And terribly complicated at that uh, in terms of how it would work in practice. The idea of uh, uh, importing goods into Northern Ireland and then getting a rebate if they stayed in Northern Ireland or an EU tariff being applied otherwise uh, is very difficult for people to understand. Uh, And I'm not sure if you believe it's a proposal that has any merit. It's a very complex proposal and I suppose there are people out there who can immediately see loopholes in it which could be used for their advantage. For smuggling purposes. Yes, and and there's a lot of people on the border who have no doubt licking their lips at that suggestion. But what I would say to you is that, again, these are all genuine attempts to get round what everybody accepts as an intractable position. It's very, very difficult. And we understand 
the rationale of the Irish position on this. We do, and we can see it from their point of view. I'm a member, I was a member of the British Irish Parliamentary Association, and I spoke to many TDs, and I fully am aware of why they have concerns, and we were trying to do our best. I mean, then we got castigated mm. for it, of course, of not going far enough. But at the end of the day, I think we need to give our negotiators their total support, our total support in the week ahead because... Yeah, well, I, uh, having said that though, I mean, how well do you understand the Irish position? I mean, would you agree that the Irish government would be mad to trust Boris Johnson if the DUP can't trust him? Well, the, the Irish government should only trust what's agreed in the form of the protocols that hopefully will emerge after the... But do you understand what I'm saying? That's why the Irish government has been looking for an insurance policy. Their the trust isn't there. Yes, yes, and I can understand why they're looking at insurance policy, but equally they have to understand why we can't sign up until eternity to that insurance policy. There has to be some mechanism whereby if a thing goes completely astray and is to the disadvantage of Northern Ireland, both economically and politically, that we have a right to get out. Remember, the people of Galway would not agree to be tied into any deal like this, so why should the people of Northern Ireland? All right, we have to leave it there, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme, as always. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. We had um, a couple of phone calls in relation to Brexit and the situation at the moment. Um, Joe from Kells phoned in and he says... Michael, we are sick to the back teeth of Brexit. The deal was done. It was done three years ago. Leo Varadkar indicated at the time it was bulletproof. That's the term he used. Now, three years down the line, they are still messing around with it. I think there's far too many people involved wanting to have their say, putting their own shine on it. The UK should do the decent thing and honour the deal that was made in the first place. I think the politicians are making a hames of it now. Yeah, well, the deal was done with Mrs May. Uh, Mrs May brought it to Parliament. Parliament said no and then said no again and in fact rejected the deal on three different occasions, which is why the British government now says it can't continue with what had been agreed. Martin says it's the final countdown in relation to Brexit. There seemed to be a glimmer of hope, I felt, following that meeting between Leo and Boris last week. But now it seems that there's not enough time to get this through. So where is that going to leave us? Will there be an extension or will they go out without a deal? I think there'll be an extension. Okay, um, Marate from Drogheda says Brexit is going on and on and on and on, Michael. Where is it all going to end? I have this fear that we're still going to be here this time next year, says mm, Marate. Yeah, well, I and think we'll be still... here in six months anyway. Whatever about next year, which is quite possible, but I'm sure we'll be here in three, if not six months anyway. Well, that's what her fear mm. is, she says, and I just think it's going to go on and on. And in the meantime, so many businesses are afraid to expand, to take on new work. There's a lot of uncertainty amongst workers and then she adds I wonder at the end of it all will Boris turn his back on the DUP Mm. well (laughs) I'm not sure that he hasn't already Um, Michael says Geraldine well Geraldine this is an interesting one says do I detect a change of tone in Jim Wells' attitude this morning Michael he's not as balchy today as he has been in recent interviews maybe he's realising now that the EU is not going to make it easy for the UK and that they're not going to budge in relation to 
a hard board. Mm. Well, I don't think that would have any influence on his tone because I, I don't think Jim Wells would mind or be seen to mind because uh, he'd say, grand, take it or leave it. We'll leave it and we'll leave without a, a deal. That's not a, a bother. The problem that the DUP is facing into now is uh, this solution that is being proposed by Boris Johnson and uh, the government, which can be interpreted to mean that Northern Ireland will be leaving the European Union on a basis that is different than the rest of the United Kingdom. And the extension of that thought is that that is a division of the United Kingdom. It's breaking up the United Kingdom. And that is what might be unacceptable. And indeed, which Jim Mm. Wells uh, seemed to think uh, is something that the DUP could stop, not just through its 10 MPs, but the influence uh, that it has over the European Research Group in uh, the House of Commons. Uh, We'll get some more informed comments now on Brexit and if it is going anywhere or not. Because as we know, the Taoiseach Leo Radker met with the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson last Last week, and former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern spoke to BBC's Newsnight. Clearly, the meeting was in, intensive. Uh, clearly, it wasn't just a, a short uh, work in progress meeting. Um, and from what's been said over the, the hours since the meeting, um, it's clear that they, they believe there is some basis of, of making substantive progress. Um, and the very fact that uh, Steve Barclay is the, the Secretary of State. Uh, is meeting uh, Barnier tomorrow after what Barnier had said yesterday. It uh, seems that um, he's obviously going to try to convince them uh, that there's something substantive in this. So if you then go back uh, and find an agreement and find a deal on customs, how, h- how do you do it and not have a border? Now, I've always believed and been saying it for several years that even though technology may not be perfect, I don't think you can have a a customs border that will totally satisfy the European Union. Um, that, uh, as I said several, several times for years now, that trade figures and um, uh, revenue figures, by, whether by the Treasury or by the Irish Revenue, that these things now are all self-assessments. They're done in the company's office. So there's no reason that you can't deal with, with, with a lot of these issues. It won't cover everything. It, it, it won't cover... Um, you know every last truck that goes across the border um, on, on, on Northern Ireland, but I, I, I do th- I do think it should be possible to to minimise um, uh, the the extent that that's a problem. Former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern uh, seeing some scope for hope and some of uh, the possibilities uh, that may be ahead of us. He was speaking to BBC's Newsnight and uh, whilst he was optimistic there, he was asked about this possible veto that would be given to the DUP. I've said this from the start that it has to be a position where nobody has a veto. Uh, and Arlene Foster last week and the unionists did give ground on the um, at least... Um, you know, for products and, and, and the Irish Sea. So uh, I, 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 I don't honestly believe for something as big as this um, uh, that there, there should be a veto by anybody. I mean, in the end of the day, what we're talking about here uh, is this complicated or this simple, um, that uh, the European Union, that the proposals that Northern Ireland feel that they must have some say um, you know, if there's major decisions made that, made that affect them, that the institutions in Northern Ireland, which hopefully will be set up again uh, sooner rather than later, 
that they should have some say in major decisions and you have to find a way of doing that and the way has to be without a veto. Well, that was a sticking point when we spoke to Jim Wells of uh, the DUP earlier and he said that the DUP would insist on having that veto. It's all complicated and it is certainly short of time in terms of uh, minds uh, meeting but uh, that may result in an extension as uh, we've been discussing here on uh, the programme this morning. BBC's Newsnight asked uh, former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern about an extension and if there is to be an extension what type of extension would he like to see? I think um, Donald Tusk um, earlier on in the year at the time of the Summer Council believed that the extension should be long enough to try to work through all these hazardous difficulties and details. And he had suggested that time at the end of April. Uh, I must say I thought that was very wise. I see that date as being long enough um, if there is uh, no agreement now in the weeks ahead or if there's a lot of progress on the agreement but not sufficient to get everything done, that it's enough a time um, if there is a British general election, which probably probably be more likely than not, I think, um, that then you have time to continue on working the details and the technical details. Former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn telling BBC's Newsnight uh, that he'd like to see that extension run up to the end of April to allow for a, a British general election. Uh, possibly no coincidence, uh, Marie, that the Taoiseach, Leo Vratker, said he'd like a, a general election here in May, <laughs> the month after. The month after, even though there's a bit of speculation today, isn't there, that uh, some TDs want it as soon as November, Michael. Mm-hmm. Do we want that before Christmas? Well, that's uh, <laughs> on the basis uh, that of there would deal. be an agreement. Yes, uh, yes. I, I think that's the point. If there isn't an agreement, there'll be an yes, extension. That yes. might run up to April. That ties in with the Taoiseach signing. <laughs> so it could mm. just work out yep. nicely. Okay. Just J- Jerry on Brexit doesn't want to be negative, Michael, but he can see this deal being pushed through so quickly. He says they're not going to be hasty, Michael, when they have waited so long. They're going to have to have mm. all their eyes crossed and their T's dotted and make sure that everything is absolutely uh, right. So he agrees with you that there probably will be an extension. It looks that way, yes. Mm. Moving then, we have a couple of comments mm. just in relation to that piece I did earlier on the Julianstown bypass. Bernie rang in from Town and she says, it doesn't affect me necessarily, but I just want to know, will the bypass at Julianstown be done before or after the Slane bypass? Yes, that that's right. Mm. When is that going to happen, Michael? I feel so sorry for the people affected and who are protesting for these bypasses. Are they ever going to happen? Yeah. Uh, Seamus says there appears to be no appetite for investment in Rose in Meath. Look at Slane and what's going on there. Deborah lives in Leytown. She phoned in to say that she sympathises with the residents, that she experiences it day in and day out because she has to pass through the village to get to and from work. Yeah, well, I'm sure anybody in Leytown or Bettystown for that matter knows about the traffic in Julianstown and indeed further afield for that matter. But uh, obviously uh, a lot of memento behind to that campaign for a bypass and that meeting as uh, you reported earlier on Marie uh, taking place on Wednesday we leave it there for the moment thanks to everybody who has been in touch and remember if you'd like to add to what's been said as always we'd love to hear from you our telephone number is 1850-715-958 Michael Reed on LMFM if you're finding it difficult to understand what the United Kingdom is proposing, you're probably not the only one. The front page headline of the Financial Times today is Johnson's hopes 
for swift Brexit deal dented as proposals baffle EU. Let's talk to Karen Coleman, editor with Europarl Radio, which reports on the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Good morning to you, Karen. And thanks, as always, for joining us here on the programme this morning. It seems the idea here is that Northern Ireland would leave the EU Customs Union, but would apply EU rules uh, to tariffs and quotas. Uh, Does anybody in Europe understand it? Because everybody in this part of the world is finding it difficult as it is. Oh, no, I think the same thing is going on in the EU headquarters. I mean, Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, had a meeting with ambassadors from the EU's 27 countries, so not including the UK, obviously, and said that these Irish border plans, as you mentioned there, Michael, about this very strange arrangement with customs, was untested. And I think there are real concerns about how this convoluted system would actually work in reality. I mean, it seems very strange Northern Ireland would come out of the EU's customs union, but the rules would still apply. So it would it would be part of the UK's customs union, but then it would also apply EU customs rules on Northern Irish territory. But I think officials are saying that tracking goods, working out mm. systems of rebates, ensuring the avoidance of fraud would be highly complex. And therefore, this is a system which has been untested. And there are real questions about how it would work. And this has led to a situation now where there are real doubts whether any deal can be struck when EU leaders get together for this crucial pre-Brexit summit on Thursday and Friday. Do you think that the Taoiseach saw merit in this uh, when he issued that joint statement with Boris Johnson last week talking about a a pathway to a a deal? Or was it a a way of just pulling the British back from the brink? Uh, They were on the edge of that cliff uh, and perhaps this has bought some time. Well, perhaps. I mean, certainly it did, you know, everything looked very gloomy until that meeting between the two leaders last week. And then there were, you know, there was the statement about finding a pathway to a deal. And I think it gave a lot of people hope that finally, maybe, um, that the British were relenting on their insistence that, that, that you had to remove the backstop. And it looked like what they were talking about and what Johnson later revealed seemed a way of softening the backstop. But, I, I, you know, it's hard to see now with the suggestions that Boris Johnson has come out with how that can actually be achieved. And I have to say, too, there are some very ominous signals coming from Northern Ireland. The Sunday Times, I'm sure you saw it yesterday, mm-hmm. Michael, their lead story there had a story about loyalists. Uh, potentially mounting civil disobedience and campaigns of unrest if indeed any deal is done that suggests Northern Ireland has a different status to the rest of the UK. And there were also um, signals coming from the DUP. There was a statement from the DUP MP Jim Shannon um, over the weekend saying that if we're not being treated the same as England, then we're not accepting it. So, you know, we're Mm. going to see real opposition from hardcore loyalists elements in Northern Ireland, if indeed a deal is done that would suggest that Northern Ireland has a different status to the rest of the UK. And the language used, frightening. Uh, a return to the Troubles, uh, by any interpretation, Robert Girvin saying, uh, I quoted this uh, to Jim Wells, DUP MLA, earlier on, I was talking to someone who said, we'll see how hard the border is if bombs start going off in Limerick. Uh, and of course, that's not the sort of thing anybody wants, uh, but it does seem to some extent uh, that as uh, things stand, Boris Johnson and his government is damned if they do and damned if they don't. 
Yes, I mean, I have to say a shiver went down my spine, Michael, when I read that piece yesterday. I mean, the idea that anybody would would start talking about bombs going off in places in the Republic. And I think, you know, and there was this added thing that he said that loyalist paramilitary groups like the UVF had been formed to protect Northern Ireland's position in the Union. And if that was to be threatened, the organisations would step up to the mark. I mean, that is just extremely serious. Now, whether this is just sabre rattling and they don't really mean it, but of the, for, you know, for those of us with memories of what the troubles mm. were like in the height of it, you can't dismiss those kinds of threats either. Um, so, I mean, I think this is going, this just shows you the reality of Brexit and, and the problems it is causing now and why the Good Friday Agreement and all those statements about adhering to the Good Friday Agreement have been so important because, you know, people who are familiar with the troubles will know that there is a real danger we're going to see trouble again if this agreement isn't brokered properly. And that's why I think it seems unlikely, although, you know, only fools can predict what Mm. might happen here, that any deal is going to be struck between here and the end of the week, a deal that's acceptable to the rest of the EU27. And then, Michael, a deal that is going to be passed by the UK Parliament Mm. on Saturday, because, of course, there is going to be the special sitting of MPs in the House of Commons on Saturday. Well, map out the week for us, uh, because uh, it it begins today, really, doesn't it, uh, with uh, the Queen's speech, which sets out uh, the British government's uh, legislative table. But many believe that this will be a party political broadcast uh, for the Conservatives and, indeed, the position they take on this uh, and other items. Uh, Then Helen McEntee, the the junior minister will meet with her counterparts over the next couple of days. Uh, those meetings getting underway before the leaders meet uh, on Thursday and Friday. And then there is uh, that sitting of uh, the House of Commons. But when we get to the end of uh, the week, what are we looking at? Are we looking at a, a deal that will be ratified or, or not? Or are we looking at time to allow a, a deal to be agreed, an extension, in other words? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, you know, when I heard the news this morning, it seemed pretty gloomy. But then there was that statement by uh, Simon Coveney, the Tornishta, who um, was, is at a meeting in Luxembourg of foreign ministers. He said a deal is still possible, but we're not there yet. So, I mean, on the one hand, it looks like it's almost impossible at this stage because these technical issues to do with how you manage these customs rules are extremely complicated and it's hard to see how they would work out something as complicated as that within the next couple of days. But still, depending on who you're listening to, you know, it it might be possible. I would say what's more likely is that a technical extension, this is a sort of a way to avoid Boris Johnson getting completely embarrassed if he needs to ask for an extension, they'd call it a technical extension, may be the most likely scenario because it may be that it's going to take several more weeks before they figure out how this complicated system may work. But then I was just reading on the Telegraph, um, Michael, before uh, the call came through from you, Jacob Rees-Mogg from the UK is suggesting bizarrely that they could use EU laws to supersede the UK Ben Act, which okay. is this act that um, mm. prevents the UK from crashing out of the EU if the majority of MPs don't agree with that. But the notion that, you know, that is still there, the possibility that those hard Brexiteers still want to take the UK out of uh, the EU by the end of October. So anything is possible. I mean, mm. the crucial thing is that these talks are still continuing and will continue apparently in Brussels until 
very late, I would say, on Wednesday evening before that EU summit takes place. I think all eyes will be on Boris Johnson, the Cabinet, and whether they really are prepared to take the UK out of the EU by the 31st of October. They may still do that because Mm. it's hard to see how a deal that is going to satisfy the EU 27 um, is going to be brokered by the end of the week. I I find it hard to believe that's going to happen. It might do, but, but, you know, I think we're a long way off of that. If they leave on the 31st, uh, well, that's... Uh, one part of it. Then you go into the next phase of it, uh, which is the future relationship uh, agreement. Uh, And that's a two-year period that they've set aside to come to an agreement on uh, trade. Uh, And in that time, uh, there would be the scope, would there not, to agree the mechanics of this proposal that the British are, are making now. I mean, do they have to uh, agree the exact detail of how it would work in, in practice or could they agree in principle uh, that uh, you'd have this thing where Northern Ireland would leave the EU Customs Union but would come under EU rules uh, and work out how that would work uh, in the next two years after the 31st? Well, who knows, Michael? Mm. I mean, I, you know, trade deals take years and years to broker. And I mean, it's interesting, you know, it'll be an Irishman in, tra- in charge of trade negotiations with Phil Hogan when the new commission takes place. But these deals take a long time. Now, the thing about it is the UK has been a member of the EU and trading within the single market and customs unions for several decades now. So you would think it should be easier. I mean, the smart thing for the UK to do would be to leave with a deal and then to be able to negotiate future trade agreements relatively easily because it can, well, in theory, it should be able to apply a lot of the EU rules. But of course, it doesn't want to apply those EU rules. So who knows how easy or difficult that's going to be. But I think the Northern Irish thing, maybe they can maybe they can come up with some kind of a system that will enable the goods to be able to move from the UK to Northern Ireland. Mm. OK, and then move from Northern Ireland to the Republic in, into an EU zone. And somehow they will manage that. I presume it sounds complicated, mm. but they probably will come up with a system to do that. Well, it sounds like a smuggler's paradise uh, to it some extent. It sounds like yeah, a smuggler's yeah, yeah, paradise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely mm-hmm. does. Mm. Of course it does, because uh, you're talking about entering EU markets once anything goes from Northern Ireland into the Republic post-Brexit. Do you think people in Europe have calmed down since last week? Last week, uh, the European Parliament uh, began its uh, term and heard from Jean-Claude Juncker and Michel Barnier talking about Boris Johnson uh, playing the blame game and Guy Verhofstadt uh, went to a step further and uh, refer to Mr. Johnson as a traitor. <laughs> I know. Well, of course, Giver Hashtag is always quite colourful in his language and he, he doesn't pull back when he um, is talking about some of the shenanigans that have been taking place in, in Westminster. Um, no, I mean, I think this was highly predictable that Boris Johnson would blame the EU. The Brexiteers will continue to blame the EU if they don't get the deal uh, that they want us. Um, I think none of that is a particular surprise. But I think what's interesting is there's general unity among the EU 27. And so even though Johnson will potentially sell that to his own followers, that ultimately if he has to ask for an extension or this, if this goes on longer, he will blame. He'll blame the Remainers, of course, and he'll blame the rest of the EU. But I, I think from an EU perspective, that's not a surprise. I would say they want a deal now. Everybody's up with this. 
in EU quarters and they just want a deal done. They want to be able to get through this difficult period that we're all going to go through, particularly Ireland, obviously, Mm. after uh, the Brexit, whenever the UK finally leaves the EU, and that we set about establishing better relations, long-term relations for the UK being out of the EU, Um, and that then the rest of the EU work starts to take precedence because this is dominating and we've talked about this several times Michael Mm. this has dominated parliamentary proceedings over the last couple of years time and time again Brexit is the number one topic on the agenda and there's lots of other important stuff not least climate change issues that need to move up the agenda and need to take over the the, the workings of the Parliament and the EU Commission. Okay, well, maybe we're a step closer uh, to that becoming a, a reality or a possibility. Uh, it's a very important week, obviously. We'll leave it there for the moment, though, Karen. And many thanks, as always, for joining us here on the programme. Karen Coleman, editor of Europarl Radio, which reports on the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. This Sunday we'll see the 12th anniversary of 21-year-old Paul Quinn who was murdered in a farm shed in Castle Blaney in County Monaghan on the 20th of October 2007. The Irish Sun reports today that a fresh investigation is to take place into the murder of Paul Quinn following recommendations from the Serious Crime Review team. Paul's mother, Breach Quinn, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Breach, and uh, thanks for joining us. It's a long time since I last spoke to you, and uh, thank you, as I say, uh, for taking the time to be with us here on the programme today. I see in Stephen Breen's article in The Irish Sun today that you say you'll never give up fighting to nail Paul's killers, and uh, as long as you're breathing, you'll continue to fight for Paul. Good morning, Michael, and thank you for calling me. I appreciate all the help I can get. Yes, 12 years coming on Sunday. Um, I don't know whether it's been 12 long years or 12 short years. Uh, Every Saturday is just a nightmare because it was on the Saturday night. And you always remember the time and the day. Uh, Yes, there is a fresh uh, investigation. It's the cold case crowd that's taken it over and they are going through all the files so with the help of God we mm. will get justice at the end of it. It's a long time ago now isn't it I mean for any investigation I mean this is obviously very important to you, important to a lot of people but for a crime to go unsolved for so long uh, would leave people wondering if there's ever going to be a prosecution Well Michael as I said before these people are well protected by you know who and uh, they just won't let them speak out and the people won't speak out themselves. Given the passage of time, I'm sure there's uh, some people uh, who are too young to remember or it's uh, gone out of their minds. Uh, Remind us, if you will, please, Bridge, what happened to Paul? Well, um, the last time I had spoken to Paul was on the Friday night. On this, I had been out late Friday night when I came home. Paul was sitting at the table having cereal. I had a friend with me and we sat and we talked for a while and then Paul went to bed and every night when you go to bed he'd say <laughs> au revoir. <laughs> I don't know why but okay. um, the next morning uh, 
I had slept in, and when I got up, he was gone. So I went away, and when I came back that afternoon, I had said to Stephen, you know, uh, where's Paul? And he said, he's not too long gone. He was here. He made, he put on the pan, and he made a fry, which Paul was good at. <laughs> and he says he's away to pick up his friend from a football match. And that was the last Stephen seen him. Mm. We got a phone call then about half past six. And it said that Paul's two arms and two legs were broken. But then we got a call later uh, to say that uh, he was on his way to the hospital and it was his girlfriend that called and she was crying and he was on a life support machine, I think. I'm not sure. But what happened was that this lad over the road and Paul just never got on and it seems whenever they met out there there was always a fight. Now Paul was wasn't afraid of him and I'm sure he wasn't afraid of Paul either. They, they never left marks on one another or whatever but anyway on one night uh, well Paul said way back that you know this lad said he'd get Paul shot. Well past no remarks anyway he said to his dad then later uh, on at some other stage, he said the young lad's mother followed him one night and she had a hammer in her hand and she told Paul he would be got along the road in a black bag. And three weeks later, he was murdered. He was crucified. How many people were involved in his well, murder? I'd say roughly 12. Paul got a phone call to go to help in the shed and Paul would always go, you know, no matter who rang it, whatever time in the day or night Paul would jump out of his bed it was the middle of the night to help anybody these people knew Paul would do that now the by the by the boys were in the shed one of them was asked to make the call to Paul and he didn't and they I think they broke his ankle they asked another lad and the other lad that made the call his father owned the shed so they all knew this was going to happen. But the boy that made the phone call, he's a school teacher. And he, he didn't have to make that call. His father owned that shed. He was in that shed to lure Paul to it. And they just crucified the, the lad. They crucified him. Yeah, well, a lot of people, uh, and it was a very violent and undoubtedly uh, bloody incident. Uh, Paul was beaten uh, to a a pulp. Every bone in his body was broken, I I think. Uh, And uh, undoubtedly there'd have been a a lot of evidence. But that was uh, cleaned up forensically, wasn't it? Yeah, they had the, the bleach with them and they threw it all around. But the guardies say now there is new, um, there's a new way of doing DNA, so maybe, hopefully, there will be something. We keep hoping every day, Michael, that's mm. the only way you can live, like. Hope and pray, and it's just unreal. There was a, a van that Gardy were looking for, uh, which was never discovered, was it? It was never discovered, no. Never discovered. I don't know. Uh, I really don't know, Michael, what mm. 
the outcome would be. I just, as I said to you, I just hope. On the morning that Paul, uh, he was met on the road that morning, uh, and it was supposed to be, there was one lad that was in the car that met him, but we have since found out that there was two. Mm. The second fellow maintains he wasn't in it, but we've been told he was. We have, uh, as you know, um, Conor Murphy has come out and called Paul, said Paul was a criminal. That's the he Sinn Féin ha- MLA, Paul Mur- or Conor Murphy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has never withdrew his statement. He has never helped in any way. But, as I say, it just goes to show, like... Because uh, mm. there was a lot, of, a lot of things said about Paul afterwards, uh, 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 about his involvement in groups and uh, fuel smuggling. Oh, I would have driven the lorry for <laughs> for fuel. Yeah, mm. but he he wouldn't he he wouldn't have been uh, he wouldn't be a t- he would drive a lorry if somebody asked him. Yeah, but as I say, you've seen the thing in the paper about John Downey when he was arrested. That Sinn Fein came out and they. Or they just had the protest. It just goes to show they don't believe in going to and getting uh, or going to jail for any crime they commit. Mm. And then they come out and tell us that they support us and they will help us and they will help us. No, they don't. They don't help us. They they um, protect these people that murder Paul and make sure that. They don't say anything. And Stephen, in his article this morning, uh, reminds us uh, that this is uh, the subject of an investigation on both sides of the border and Guardia working with the PSNI and that over the 12 years since Paul was killed, there's been 1,900 lines of inquiry, 20 arrests, and Guardia have taken over 700 statements. Uh, I suppose uh, it's difficult for you to have hope that they can bring this to a successful conclusion. Yeah, but I don't look at it like that, Michael. I just hope, you know, in my heart, I hope every day. And that's what keeps me going. If you understand what I mean. Um, Are are, are you hopeful that somebody uh, who may have been involved or knew those who was involved uh, may have change their own opinion or their thoughts on this over the 12 years because it's a long time since this happened and uh, people uh, get older and with that uh, they change the way they look on things. Yeah and I'd be hopeful that maybe a, a brother or a sister or a girlfriend or whatever, family friends or parents would find it in their heart to tell these people to own up and to give us justice. And as I said, you know, it only takes a phone call. Yeah, and uh, that can be done in any number of ways uh, to get that information uh, to the authorities. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, there's many confidential ways of doing it. Uh, the yeah, there is a confidential mm-hmm. line there and mm-hmm. all they have to do is pick up the phone and they don't even have to give their name. Just give what's truthful. How will you remember Paul on Sunday? We will have Mass and 
come home and have a cup of tea and but Michael we remember him every day we remember him every day next Sunday is the anniversary but that's that's another day okay preach without him Indeed. Okay, and there's been a lot of days, uh, uh, the 12th anniversary on Sunday. Uh, yeah. But uh, as you say, uh, the Gardaí have launched uh, this fresh investigation and uh, you're, yeah. you're hoping yeah. for yeah. some news. Okay, Breach, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Breach Quinn, mur- mother of Paul Quinn, who was murdered on the uh, 20th of October in 2007. Michael Reed on LMFM. The whereabouts of uh, Dundalk woman Lisa Smith is unknown, but it's believed uh, that she may have been one of 800 people in a detention camp in northern Syria that escaped when uh, the inmates of uh, this refugee camp attacked uh, the guards and uh, fled uh, because of assistance from mercenaries and IS fighters uh, who came in to storm the gates after assaulting guards. Let's uh, talk a- about all of this uh, with Rory O'Murku, a local Sinn Féin councillor. Good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. What do you know about Lisa Smith? Well, I know the same information that anybody has in relation to Lisa Smith. Um, that yeah, Obviously, she went over, didn't necessarily make any great decisions, um, was in an in an ISIS-controlled area in Syria, um, had a child. Um, the first that I realised of all this is when she found herself in the camp. And now, obviously, this is the Ayn Issa camp, I think it's what it's called, and, yeah, where you've stated, I think it's 859 people have possibly escaped. And obviously, the information is scatty because, mm. you know, some of the information states like you've said, that it relates to mercenaries and IS fighters, but then you also have that it's in it's happening as there is a Turkish push and possibly a Turkish assault on that very camp as uh, they're uh, obviously uh, taking on, uh, on the, the guards who are Kurds uh, who've been abandoned yeah. by President Trump uh, and uh, this was almost uh, inevitable indeed. Uh, there had been fears for Lisa Smith and her daughter's life prior to this happening over the weekend. No, obviously, like, they're Many people have concerns in relation to anyone even staying in a camp like that in a, what would you call it, what was not necessarily a great situation before you have an all-out full frontal war situation as you have at the minute. Um, No, you would would have to be worried about her and particularly a two-year-old child that didn't make any decision that got them into the situation they now find themselves in. But again, none of us are working with the proper information. There is, we believe that she is among these 859. We believe, you know what I mean? Mm. We don't have no information as to whether she's alive, dead, whatever, where she is or what the situation is or what, you know, or what her involvement in any of this was whatsoever. What are your own thoughts? Well... Do you think she has any credibility? Obviously, we all saw the pictures that Norma Costello released before. Um, now the only thing the um, ones with the guns in Tunisia is it? yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. we would have had we would have mm. had the information in relation to anger you would have heard from certain mm. people in Dundalk even 
you know, members of the Muslim community mm. that who may have, you know, afforded her an element of uh, support beforehand who are somewhat angry with her. But uh, Norma Costello, when she spoke about Lisa Smith, like her her view of her, there was an element of she saw her as a fantasist. So, um, like, the best you could say in relation to Lisa Smith is she made dreadful decisions and she's ended up in a situation where she's put a two-year-old in really, really brutal conditions and, and in danger. Um, but there is a humanitarian concern. And beyond that, we always stated that if there was anything for her to answer in relation to any actions or her involvement with ISIS, they would be up to um, the guards to deal with. And mm. we're aware at the moment that there is a guard investigation, and that's to be welcomed. Now, at this point in time, we don't know where she is. We don't know what she's at. Or what the basis for that guard investigation is, or if yeah. there's any evidence that could be gathered to support uh, the theory that uh, she was radicalised and uh, has been part of uh, a terrorist group as part of Islamic State. Uh, there's many who would suggest now that she's just been rescued. Uh, by Islamic State and has uh, returned uh, to where she wants to be because of uh, the national army that she recognises and that's obviously not the Irish army. That's all possible but again we don't exactly know this state of affairs and we won't know until here we get almost a statement directly Mm. from Lisa Smith or or someone very close to her. Well, she was being held as a a security threat, as uh, an ISIS bride uh, by the Kurds, uh, who helped to defeat ISIS uh, in northern Syria, along with uh, the Americans. Uh, Isn't it odd that President Trump has sold them out this way? Yes. You've seen Democrats and Republicans both giving out. It's uh, From their point of view, I suppose, from an American point of view, it's not even the rights and wrongs. It's how can anybody ever rely on America as an ally again? You know, whatever the impact this will have in relation to whether, because they're all there is talk at the moment, obviously, of a reformation of ISIS or an attempt to rebuild, as they would term it, an Islamic revolution. But eh, America has really let itself down badly. Has let down, yeah, its allies, and again, it's 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 posing serious problems for. American future politics in the sense of how can anybody rely on them again if they have let down the Kurds as badly as they have let them down. It's possible this is the last we'll hear of Lisa Smith, isn't it? Well, at this point in time, we have incomplete information. So until Mm. the point in time we have more information, who knows? Yeah, well, who knows? But there's a, a, a lot of reasons uh, for suggesting that it could be the last we hear of Lisa Smith. And uh, one of them would be the interviews that she's given in recent times and how ISIS might interpret those interviews. But that is also possible, yes, because um, I think people had spoken that she was possibly in danger from the point of view of some of her interviews weren't necessarily supportive of ISIS and that there was some dissension with some of the other people in the camp who were still much more supportive of ISIS. But again, we're, this is all hypothesis and we're not completely sure and we won't know till we have further information. If we did hear from Lisa Smith again, in terms of whether she should be allowed back into this country or not, what would your view be, Rory? Well, it would all depend on the circumstance. You know, if Lisa Smith is reinvolving herself with ISIS or whatever, that's a completely different set of situations to, you know, a, mm. a situation where we don't know how 
this escape happened. We don't know what the escape happened. You know, mm. from her point of view, what her involvement was, whether this was just a case of, you know, people under fire fleeing, running, I don't know. Declan Power was saying to us, uh, the defence analyst Declan Power was saying to us uh, on Friday last week uh, that if she was to return to Ireland, it might be better for her if she, if she was put in prison for her own protection. Well, undoubtedly, there is a serious amount of anger and unease. But it would be for the Gardaí to make a decision in relation to whether laws were broken or whether she still was um, a threat or whether she was a threat to the state. And it, it's not for you, me or anyone else to make those decisions. It would be down to the Gardaí Sheikhana. Well, we all have a, a, a say in our own security if we're fearful of our personal security and uh, if there are allegations like that that can or cannot be established by the Gardaí, there are people who would say, well look, do you know, logic dictates uh, that there should be 24-7 surveillance on somebody like this. If there's an imminent danger from somebody, of course, surveillance is absolutely necessary and it would need to be, yeah, if, if 24-7 is what but, but does, determination but, is what was but, but required, does, then that does, what would be required. Does going to Syria and uh, marrying uh, uh, there and uh, becoming a nice bride, as uh, she's called, uh, warrant 24-hour round-the-clock surveillance? Well, from my point of view, it doesn't put you in a particularly good light. Mm. As I say, at very best, you've made some really, really terrible decisions. Now, do I know the ins and outs of what she did? Do I know the ins and outs of, of where her head is at the moment? Do I know any of that? No, I, I don't. As I say, my only dealings with this were from the point of view of she and a, at, at that point in time, a, a two-year-old child were probably in a far from perfect situation in a refugee camp where there was a danger to them. And I always stated that it would be up to the guardie to make a determination in relation to what danger she posed and then to act accordingly. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Rory O'Murku speaking to us from Dundalk uh, and brings our programme to its conclusion. That's where we leave you for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.